This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the story of the surreal reality of Mexico's greatest artist. Welcome back to Historical, my dear listeners. It's July, which means that 2020 is halfway over. Praise be. In light of everything going on in my life right now, and, you know, the global pandemic that's still raging, these days I've been thinking a lot about Frida Kahlo. Her life was marked by pain, chronic illness, and despair. But despite it all, she had gifts to share and passion for living. July 6th is the anniversary of her birth, and July 13th is the anniversary of her death. Now more than ever, I'm looking to her as a source of strength, and I hope you find power in her story as well. This episode was first broadcast last year and was the very first time that I did accompanying historical footnotes episodes. Stick through the end for information on the rest of the episodes that you can find in this series. For now, though, imagine yourself under the sunny skies at La Casa Azul on the brink of the Mexican Revolution. Chapter 1. The Blue House The story of Frida Kahlo begins and ends at La Casa Azul, the Blue House. But first, we must travel back further. In 1890, a Jewish man of Hungarian-Jewish descent made his way to Mexico. His name was Wilhelm Kahlo. Wilhelm Kahlo had left Germany after the death of his mother. He'd been attending the University of Nuremberg, but Kahlo hated his new stepmother, and his father basically paid him off to go on one of those find-yourself trips. He certainly found himself because after he landed in Mexico, he changed his name to Guillermo, the Spanish equivalent of Wilhelm. Once in his new country, he took up the trade of his father, that of a jeweler. Guillermo worked in a jewelry shop that aristocratic members of society, and basically all the higher-ups of the Porfirio Diaz dictatorship frequented. He married and had two daughters, but his first wife died during her second childbirth. In fact, on the very night that she died, Kahlo proposed to Matilde Calderon, an Oaxacan woman he worked with at the jewelry store. They were married three months later. Let's talk for a second about Matilde. Matilde was deeply devoted to her traditional Catholic upbringing and was of mixed indigenous and Spanish descent. Guillermo was deeply in love with Matilde, but her feelings were never as deep because of her own tragic relationship past. The love of Matilde's life committed suicide in front of her. Like Guillermo, this man was also German, and I think... This was one of those situations where he also looked like Guillermo. Despite this, they remained married until Matilde's death in the 1930s. Once they were married, Guillermo sent his two daughters from his previous marriage to be raised in a convent, which, okay. He then switched careers and became a photographer. And not just your standard wedding or family photographer, he became the official photographer for the Porfirio Diaz regime. This improved the family's fortunes greatly, and in 1904, Guillermo built the Blue House in Coyoacan, which is in Mexico City. Guillermo and Matilde would go on to have four daughters together. Their third daughter, Magdalena Carmen Frida Calderon, 
was born in 1907, although she would later tell the world she was born in 1910, the year that saw the beginning of the Mexican Revolution. Little Frida was a curious, precocious child with tomboy tendencies. She rejected the traditional upbringing of learning to cook and sew that her mother wanted her to learn and instead assisted her father with his photography. She not only helped him retouch images, she was also his caregiver when he had epileptic attacks during his photography sessions. He would soon return the favor and care for her when at just six years old, Frida was stricken with polio. Modern theories are that it wasn't actually polio. It was spina bifida, which is a congenital disease. But either way, poor little Frida's right leg was shorter and thinner than her left leg. Children, who can be seriously terrible, called her Frida Kahlo Pegleg Hollow. Guillermo encouraged her to take vigorous physical exercise and play sports, all things that were looked down upon for a middle-class girl at this time. Okay, let's back up to a sec- for a second to Frida's sisters. Her eldest sister was named Matilde after their mother, followed by Adriana. Christina was Frida's younger sister and the sister she was closest to. When Frida was seven, she helped Matilde run away to be with her boyfriend, and no one from the family heard from Matilde for four years. Remember Matilde, because she's going to come up, up again later. Christina and Frida were inseparable. With the war raging on outside of their house, their mother was a supporter of the Zapatista movement. She would tell the girls to hide, and then she would invite the soldiers in to feed them and care for their wounds. Frida would later recount how she and Christina would hide in the wardrobe as the sound of bullets whizzed by their windows. As Frida grew, her interest in medicine peaked. She loved the insides of bodies and especially loved anatomical drawings. During her childhood, her artistic pursuits included helping her father with his photography and drawing little doodles all over her notebooks. And this, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. A traditional native Mexican mother, an artistic German father, sisters both far and present who didn't really relate to her, and a country in the midst of revolution. Chapter 2, The Little Dancer. Frida was fiercely intelligent and had dreams of becoming a doctor. Her father remarked that she was like the son he never had. Frida's mother was less than supportive about her desire to go to high school. Girls of that time didn't attend past elementary school and then spent the rest of their time learning to keep house. That's not what Frida wanted, which again, remember this for later. Guillermo fought with Matilde until finally she relented and allowed Frida to take the entrance exam for the National Preparatory School. The admitted class was 2,000 students, and Frida was one of 35 women offered admission in 1922. Her plans to become a doctor seemed to be on track. At school, while all the other girls stuck to the chaperoned girls' lounge, Frida ran with a group of boys in a, cl- in a club called Las Cuchachas, which I tried to find the translation and have come across multiple definitions. One is the little dictators, and the other is a vulgar slang word for a part of the female body. The group sounds like they were a political version of the Dead Poet Society, but instead of poetry, they were into communism. By all accounts, Frida enjoyed her time at school. She was a little hellion, of course, and was rebellious in classes and known for her wit. She also liked a good dirty joke, which is probably why she ran with that crowd. Probably the most Frida thing that she did during her time at school was annoy the muralist who was hired to paint a wall of the school. 
someone you may have heard of, Diego Rivera. Yes, long before they would marry, back when she was a teen and he was solidly middle-aged, Frida would play pranks on the famous painter. His wife, Lupe, brought him lunch every day, leaving it at the bottom of the scaffolding for him. Frida would alternate between stealing his lunch and shouting at him to hide his many girlfriends, yelling that Lupe was coming and he'd better hide. Oh, Frida. She even told her friends that Diego would one day be the father of her children. When she wasn't terrorizing Diego, she was exploring her burgeoning sexuality. It was rumored that she began an affair with a lady librarian, which I've seen multiple places, but I'm not sure if it's true or not. This was around the time that she also met her first love, Alejandro Gomez Arias. He was a young law student she met through Las Cuchachas. So here she is, teenage firecracker Frida Kahlo, hanging out with a group of communist boys. She stopped going to classes, finding that she could do all the readings and still pass her exams, and hanging around a world-famous painter who was a known womanizer. She also experimented with her dress, opting for men's fashions and photographs. Her traditional Mexican mother was horrified, to say the least. But get this. She was afraid that Frida would become, shock horror, an atheist. Whatever her parents thought, Frida was undeniably Frida. Up to this point, her leg deformity did not slow her down. Then, in 1925, Frida's entire life changed forever. Now, you've probably heard this story before, how Frida survived a bus accident that left her with chronic pain. Okay, that's true, but what you probably haven't heard is, one, exactly how horrific this accident was. Like, horrific doesn't even do it justice. justice. It's biblical levels of horror. And two, the way her mangled body was found was like a sick metaphor for her later art. Let's set the scene. Frida and Alejandro get off a bus only to realize that she left her umbrella behind. They get off the bus to look for it. They then get on another bus on their way home. Now, stop thinking about the modern buses that you ride in your city. This was 1925. There weren't safety features. The bus probably didn't even have windows. It was probably open air. The second bus was crowded with workers going home. One worker was carrying with him a bag of golden dust. The bus driver attempted to pass an electric streetcar, but instead the streetcar sideswiped the bus and then dragged it several feet. Multiple people died on impact, and many more died later in the hospital. Frida's clothes had been ripped from her body, and her pelvis was literally impaled by a handrail. She was covered in blood and the golden dust. When people around her, including Alejandro, realized she'd been gravely injured, they started shouting, the little dancer, help the little dancer. I, be- I guess because the way the gold dust mixed with her blood, she looked as though she was wearing some kind of dancer's costume. Okay, let's all take a deep breath and either let that image settle or immediately forget that I told you, whichever makes you feel better. There was a billiards room nearby and they lifted her onto a pool table. Alejandro removed the handrail from her abdomen and her screams filled the room because she was actually conscious during this whole thing. Also, oh my God, why did he remove it? You don't touch that stuff. You let the doctors handle it. Miraculously, she survived and spent the next month in the hospital. 
her mother and father were so freaked out and grief-stricken that neither one of them visit her in the hospital. Her elder sister, Mathilde, whom she had helped run away when she was seven, she read about the accident in the newspaper, and she was the one to go down to the hospital. She stayed by Frida's side and helped care for her. The final toll of her injuries included a fractured pelvic bone, punctured abdomen and uterus, dislocated shoulder, broken collarbone, spine broken in three places, her right leg broken in 11 places, and three broken vertebrae. I think we need to toast one out just for the fact that she lived. When she was finally able to return home, she was immobile in a full body cast. Her pain and her boredom were excruciating. She remained in that bed for months as her body healed. Her mother attached a mirror to the canopy of the bed so that she could see herself and bought her an easel that fit on the bed. Her father supplied the paints. And this was how Mexico's greatest artist got her start in painting, confined to a bed, a prisoner in her own body. Chapter 3, The Elephant and the Dove. It was a medical miracle that Frida had not only survived the bus crash, but she also relearned to walk and dance. But her body was a shadow of itself, and the rest of her life was marked by chronic pain. Her dream of being a doctor was over, and she needed to find a new way to support herself. During her convalescence, she had become quite the accomplished painter. She did many self-portraits and later commented, I paint self-portraits because I am so often alone because I am the person I know best. Being in bed for so long, she had to turn inward and really get to know herself in order to survive. Alejandro visited for a while, but ended up breaking up with Frida and going to school in Europe. This left a hole in Frida's life, but not for long. Her paintings in tow, Frida marched down to Diego Rivera's latest mural. It had been several years since her schoolgirl hijinks, but Diego must have remembered her voice because when she shouted, Diego, come down, he actually did come down off his scaffolding. Frida told him she was not interested in flirting. She wanted his opinion as an artist if her work was any good. She hoped to use her art to contribute to her family's finances, which had gone downhill since both the revolution and Frida's accident. She was 22 years old and he was 43 and a world-famous painter. He simply wasn't used to people, women especially, being so bossy and blunt with him. He truly did like her work and told her as such. From these humble beginnings, he began frequenting the Blue House under the pretense of critiquing her art, but really he was interested in her. Diego Rivera was a massive man. He was six foot one and 300 pounds. He had bulging eyes and a big belly. He even told people he looked like a toad. Famous painter or not, Frida's family was not impressed. Not only was he so much bigger and so much older than Frida, he was also still married to his wife, Lupe, with whom he had two daughters. But Frida's foreshadowing as a high school student proved partially correct. She would end up marrying Diego. On the night of their wedding, August 29th, 1929, Frida looked resplendent in a borrowed blouse and rebozo. But now that she was Mrs. Rivera, that meant she had to take on all the drama that came with her new title. Diego's ex-wife Lupe got really drunk and lifted Frida's skirts and screamed, see those sticks? Those are the legs Diego prefers over mine. 
Diego, also extremely drunk, didn't do anything about it, and Frida went home in tears. He didn't come for her for several days. So that was an auspicious start to their marriage. Now here's something that I found very interesting given the popular image of Frida as well as her own past actions. Frida was super into the idea of keeping house and home. She longed for a child and she relished in cooking for Diego, particularly his lunches, which she would drop off at the scaffolding for him while he worked, much as Lupe had done when she was a teenager. There's nothing at all wrong with this. I was just very surprised at how into homemaking she was. She's always painted as this revolutionary person, so I found it fascinating that this one area of her life she was traditional about. Despite Lupe's earlier humiliation, Lupe softened to Frida and even taught her how to cook. Frida had no time for her mother's lessons as a child, so instead she got them from her husband's ex-wife. As Frida adjusted to her new life, she slowly began adopting her new style and identity. She began wearing the long flowing Tijuana skirts that she's known for in an effort to hide her deformed leg and also in celebration of her heritage. While she'd been more of a tomboy in her younger years, she slowly began adding the fashion flourishes and flower crowns that have become iconic to her image. Shortly after their marriage, Diego was kicked out of the communist party. And how this happened is kind of incredible. Never one to shy away from theatrics, he made a clay pistol, which he then crushed as symbolic of his departure. These were not subtle people. Not only was he kicked out of the Communist Party, he also began having affairs. While she knew what she was getting into when she married him, it was still soul-crushing to Frida. She was an intense person, and to say that she considered herself and Diego soulmates is an understatement. Despite the pain of his infidelities, Frida stuck by her man, and they continued living at the Blue House for a time. They were both fiercely supportive of each other's work. Diego even commented that Frida's work was better than his. During this time, Frida continued to paint, but she did it as more of a hobby to pass the time and not as a serious pursuit. She said of her art, My painting carries with it the message of pain. And a super fun quote from her that I love, expletive word incoming, so earmuffs if you have little kids with you. I was born a bitch. I was born a painter. I just love her. Frida had a deep pride and connection to her country, but when the nomadic life of a muralist wife became real to her, she found herself on a borderline. Chapter four. Gringolandia. In 1930, Diego received a commission to paint murals at the California School of Fine Arts and the San Francisco Stock Exchange. The pair moved to California, and Frida kind of kept up her same routine of spending her time cooking and keeping house, with painting being a hobby on the side. Now, the thing with living in America, Frida pretty much hated it. She and Diego were communists, remember, and to Frida, the whole American way of life in which there was constant pressure to achieve and buy things, it really graded her. She said, I find that Americans completely lack sensibility and good taste. They are boring, and they all have faces like unbaked rolls. So that was how she felt about Americans, and I actually love that quote. I think it's really funny, and honestly, I never get to hear what people outside of the U.S. really think about our country, so when I see these little nuggets, I'm usually like, yeah, they're not wrong. Anyway, that was a big digression. After San Francisco, 
Diego got a solo show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. In New York, the pair hobnobbed with celebrities, movie stars, and Rockefellers. The Rockefellers even giving Diego a commission, which I'll come back to later. The pair didn't speak amazing English, with Frida understanding and speaking more of it than Diego, but they were seen as exotic, and they were the toast of the town. Frida looked like an Aztec princess next to the starlets that they ran with. They were invited to glittering parties where Frida would purposely cause a scene to get a reaction from the crowd, and they loved her for it. When they weren't out partying and Diego was off working on his murals and betting Hollywood actresses, Frida mostly went to the movies. She really enjoyed watching comedies from Charlie Chaplin and the Marx Brothers. But the disparity of wealth and the general drabness of the metropolis really made Frida resentful of living in America. In 1932, she painted one of her most famous works titled Self-Portrait Along the Borderline of Mexico and the United States. The image depicts her in an innocent pink Euro-style dress with lace gloves as she holds a cigarette and a Mexican flag. She's literally standing between a crumbling but vibrantly colored Mexico and the steel and pollution of American factories. Also in 1932, they moved to Detroit because Henry Ford wanted Diego to paint him a mural. Now, over the years, Frida had longed to have a child, and she'd even had several miscarriages and at least one medically necessary abortion. When she became pregnant in 1932, it was the first fetus that seemed viable, and the doctors were confident that this one would make it. The baby did not make it, and Frida almost died. Diego came home to find her in a pool of blood on July 4th, 1932. She was taken to Henry Ford Hospital, where she spent an entire month. She begged to see her baby, but the doctors refused because it had only been about three months old and not fully formed yet. In anguish, she painted Henry Ford Hospital, which is a really hard painting to look at. You can see her pain in this picture. It depicts her on a bloody hospital bed with a fetus flying above her and a uterus below. As if that wasn't enough, two months later, she had to return to Mexico because her mother was dying. To get there, she had to take a train, which took days, and she arrived just in time to say goodbye. Guillermo was a wreck, and seeing her family in such a state made her homesick for Mexico. Let's back up to the Rockefeller incident. So the Rockefellers were huge fans of Diego and commissioned him to paint a mural at Rockefeller Center. Diego had returned to New York for this commission. Frida was irritated with Diego because while he stated he was a communist, he loved accolades and he worked for the Rockefellers, which was the epitome of capitalism. She said, the most important thing for everyone in Gringolandia is to have ambition and become somebody. And frankly, I don't have the least ambition to become anybody. Diego ended up losing the commission and his mural was destroyed when he tried to sneak in a portrait of Lenin into the background of the mural. He refused to take it out, so the Rockefellers had it destroyed. They fought a lot. Frida wanted desperately to return to Mexico, but Diego wanted to stay in the U.S., where he was getting big-ticket commissions. It's important to note that with all of Frida's health issues, they had insane hospital bills to pay off, and as a couple prone to partying and hedonistic flights of fancy, they were not amazing with money. With her mental state deteriorating due to all the recent trauma and just the overall loneliness and boredom of being in the U.S., they finally returned to Mexico. Diego was not happy about this and blamed Frida for the artistic drought he experienced upon their return. In fact, 
While Frida thought returning to Mexico would be their savior, their stormy marriage was about to face a tempest. Chapter 5. Take a lover who looks at you like you are magic. Okay, if you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're wondering when I'm going to get to all the salacious details of Frida and Diego's sexual lives. Well, here's a brief overview for you. When Diego and Frida moved back to Mexico City, they moved into what is known as the Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo Studio Home. It was two modern-looking houses adjoined by a narrow bridge. Diego's house was much larger and bright pink. Frida's was a more subdued blue. Diego had a large studio in his home, perfect for seducing all his naked muses. Frida also took lovers, both men and women, and here's one I'm sure you'll be absolutely shocked by. So Diego was totally down with Frida sleeping with other women, didn't care, thought it was hot, but if he found out that she was sleeping with a man, he would lose his damn mind. In fact, he pulled a gun on Frida's lover, the Japanese sculptor Isamu Naguchi. Yeah, so I guess it was totally cool in his mind to sleep with everything that moved, but not okay for his wife. (sighs) As if this hypocrisy wasn't enough, soon after moving back to Mexico, Diego committed his ultimate act of betrayal. Frida discovered Diego sleeping with her younger sister, Christina. Christina also had a broken marriage and had two kids by her abusive husband. She lived with Rivera and Frida for a time, and to be helpful and give her some work so she could support herself, Frida suggested that Christina organize Diego's studio for him. It turned out that wasn't such a good idea. The sisters didn't speak for a while, but Frida did eventually forgive Christina, and Christina was a big help to Frida in her later years when she was increasingly infirm. This was something of a breaking point for Frida. She moved out into a small apartment and cut off all her hair. This was a huge jab to Diego because he had always loved her long, black Aztec princess hair. She went back to New York for a bit, but despite everything this man had put her through, Frida could not live without him. She didn't so much forgive as stop caring about his infidelities and began carrying on her own in earnest. She was more discreet than Diego, however, case in point, him pulling the gun on the sculptor. Now, as much of a sleaze as Diego was, he did truly love Frida and couldn't live without her either. They both were huge supporters and defenders of each other's work, and it was one of those relationships where they just got each other. So their separation did take a toll on him too. He lost some weight and was just miserable in general. As something of an olive branch, he appealed to her love of communist ideals to try to win her back to his life. You see, in the 1930s, Stalin was rising to power and pushing the Lenin and Trotsky people out. Leon Trotsky, one of the architects of the 1917 October Revolution, Trotsky was exiled, so Diego pulled some strings with the Mexican president, as one does when they are famous, and Trotsky was granted asylum in Mexico. Diego convinced Frida to let Trotsky and his wife live with them at the Blue House. The four of them would take meals together and go on outings to show Trotsky all the wonders of Mexico. But soon, Frida and Trotsky started an affair. It started with deep conversations about revolution and the future of their respective countries and governments. Then they moved on to passing notes to each other between the pages of books. It's speculated that Frida entered into this relationship solely to get back at Diego which if true was successful because after living at the blue house for two years, Diego and Trotsky had a serious falling out. The craziness of that story doesn't end there. However, 
After the Trotskys moved out, Trotsky was assassinated, and both Frida and Diego were under suspicion for having carried it out. Diego skipped town to work on a mural and avoid questioning. Frida and her sister Christina, however, were taken away, roughed up, and questioned for several days. Which I might add, they were taken away in front of Christina's children, and the police did nothing to ensure that the kids were okay or looked after while they took their mother in. So there's that. Then in 1939, Frida got her first solo New York show. For the first time, she was Frida Kahlo the artist and not just Diego Rivera's wife. She was nervous to go, but Diego encouraged her. While there, she met up with the photographer, Nicholas Murray, whom she had met in Mexico. They had an affair that lasted 10 years, with many photos taken of Frida by her lover. Out of all her lovers she took during her marriage, Nicholas Murray was the most significant. Murray eventually ended the relationship because she saw him as only a lover and wouldn't marry him. He ended up marrying someone else, but they remained friends until her death. Now, Diego had an ulterior motive in having her go to New York. Diego wanted to get a divorce. Allegedly, he wanted to marry the actress Paulette Godard, who is Charlie Chaplin's wife. The historical six degrees of separation strikes again. When confronted with the prospect of divorce, Frida was shattered. She spent some time in Paris hanging out with the surrealists, including Andre Breton and Salvador Dali, but she hated the Parisian art scene. She always gets lumped in with surrealists, but she said of her artwork, they thought I was a surrealist, but I wasn't. I never painted dreams. I painted my own reality. She sounds like she was a super intense person. While they were separated, she painted some of her most famous profound works. The Two Fridas, which is a double self-portrait, one Frida in a white dress and one in a more colorful skirt and blouse. Each has an exposed heart, but the blood vessels of the Frida in a white dress were cut with scissors in her hand in dripping blood. She was very subtle about her feelings. The other famous work from this time period was Self-Portrait with Cropped Hair. In this painting, she's dressed in men's clothing and has scissors in her hands with her hair like little snakes all over the floor. She wrote at the top of the piece, See, if I loved you, it was for your hair. Now you're bald. I don't love you anymore. Diego, oh my God, man, what did you do? Okay, so to kind of round out this chapter, I leave you with a list of her lovers, both alleged and confirmed. Enjoy. Josephine Baker... Georgia O'Keeffe, Leon Trotsky, Nicholas Murray, Isamu Noguchi, Shavella Vargas, Jacqueline Lamba. Get it, Frida. Chapter 6. Who needs feet when I have wings to fly? As you may have guessed, Diego and Frida didn't stay divorced for long. In fact, the entire time they were divorced, they still spoke frequently, talked about each other's art, and Frida even continued handling Diego's correspondence and finances. During their separation, Frida's health worsened considerably, and she was seriously addicted to alcohol. She traveled to San Francisco to see her doctors for relief of back pain. As it happened, Diego was still there painting a mural after fleeing Mexico in fear he'd be indicted for Trotsky's assassination. She went ahead and had a little affair with a man named Heinz Berggren, who came to visit her in the hospital every day. But then Diego came by and begged her to marry him again, so she went back to that whole situation. They returned to Mexico and lived once more at the Blue House, although Diego kept the other house they had previously lived in to continue using it as an art studio. 
They both were resigned to the fact that they would each continue having affairs, and the next few years passed much more peacefully between them. Now, while they had been divorced, Frida had realized how vulnerable she was without Diego's financial contributions. She wanted to be able to independently make her own money. This desire, coupled with the fact that she was finally getting her own recognition for her art, led her to start taking her painting more seriously. Up till this point, her paintings were mostly tiny, and she did them on tin sheets. When she started getting offers to exhibit her work, first in New York, then in Paris, organized by Andre Breton, no less, she started using large canvases. She also started refining her work into the styles and shapes that tended to sell better. Which I get it, you gotta get paid. When you're a painter, art is work. During her stay in Paris for her group show, she befriended Picasso, who was also a friend of Diego. Picasso gave Frida a pair of earrings shaped like hands, which you can see in photographs taken of her. Frida was fashionable and could win over any room. She was even featured on the cover of French Vogue. Despite her success and the public image of this regal, fiercely creative figure, Frida's body was breaking down. Over the next 14 years, she had numerous surgeries and corsets made of steel and plaster, all in an effort to alleviate the horrible pain in her back. She was confined to bed frequently and became addicted to painkillers in addition to her addiction to alcohol. She was at least peaceful. She began teaching art at the Department of Public Education's School of Painting and Sculpture. Her students became known as the Fritos, and not only did she pose for them, but as her back problems became more severe, she even taught her classes from home. As her final years were increasingly marked by excruciating pain, her paintings inevitably reflected that. You've probably seen her painting The Wounded Deer. In this painting, her head is attached to the body of a deer that has been shot with arrows and is bleeding onto ground littered with the broken branches of dead trees. The other striking painting during these years was The Broken Column. This one really harkens back to her dreams of medicine, because in this one, she graphically exposes her steel spinal column. She's flayed open from chin to navel, her torso held together with a corset, tears flowing from her eyes, and nails, like nails that you hammer, are placed all over her body, including in her face. The woman was hurting. It became so bad that she was confined to the Blue House and had to use a wheelchair, which is still in the Blue House should you visit. She could no longer sit or stand for continuous periods of time. Over the last 10 years of her life, as her health problems increased, she began keeping a journal. Her journal had text, drawings, and recipes, and was an outlet for her fears, frustrations, and pain. We'll put a pin in this and talk more about the journal in a bit. As if all that wasn't enough, she suffered bouts of depression frequently, especially after her father Guillermo died in 1941. And she developed gangrene on her right foot. They initially started by amputating a few of her toes. In 1953, it was pretty clear that Frida was not long for the world. She had never had a solo exhibition in Mexico, despite being one of its most famous artists. An exhibition was planned in her honor. This lifted her spirits considerably, and Frida was involved in designing her invitations for opening night. The only hitch? Her doctors told her she couldn't leave her bed and would have to miss the opening party. So Frida, being Frida, arranged to have her entire four-poster bed transported to the gallery by ambulance and then carried into the gallery. This was an especially interesting choice. 
It became almost performance art because the image of a sedated Frida on her bed was a physical representation of the pain she had been painting in her artworks that were now finally displayed on the walls of a gallery in her native land. The party was something of a living funeral as people were overcome with emotion and for many it would be the last time they saw Frida alive with her paintings. In the last months of her life, she had to have her entire leg amputated. They made a prosthetic for her, but her dependence on alcohol and painkillers made it difficult for her to walk. So her balance was so warped, she couldn't actually use it. She wrote in her journal, I hope the exit is joyful, and I hope never to come back. She rededicated herself to politics and worked on causes from her bed. Despite a critical case of pneumonia and against doctors' wishes, again, she made it to a demonstration against U.S. involvement in Guatemala in her wheelchair. A few days later, she celebrated her 47th birthday by hosting more than 100 guests in her home on July 7, 1954. Several days after that, she gave Diego a ring that she had intended to give him on their 25th anniversary in August. The next night, she died in her bed in the Blue House, her beloved home where she had been born. The official cause of death was pulmonary embolism, but theories abound that she either committed suicide by overdose or had an assisted suicide, with Diego being the prime suspect for that theory. However death found her, she was finally released from her suffering. She was given a grand funeral, and her body was laying in state at the Palace of Fine Arts. One of the Fritos draped the communist flag over her coffin that Diego refused to remove and ended up being a whole controversy. I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that some details of Frida's life are exaggerated because she was a storyteller and liked things to be on her terms. I ran across the story of her cremation, but I haven't been able to verify it. I'll tell it to you because whether or not it's true, I think it's a story Frida would have liked told. When her coffin arrived at the crematorium, mourners gathered and tried to grab the jewels and flowers from her body. When they pushed her into the flames, a blast of heat made her body sit up, with her hair burning like the halo of a saint. Chapter 7, Frida Mania While Frida started gaining acclaim of her own accord toward the final years of her life, for most of her career, she was just known as Diego Rivera's wife. All that changed in the 1970s when Frida was rediscovered by both the feminist and Chicana movements. She became an icon of both movements, and now today, her likeness is emblazed on everything from t-shirts to prayer candles, which I have a Frida Kahlo prayer candle, so I'm guilty of it too. Since her death, her fame has even eclipsed that of her husband, who overshadowed her through much of her life, which makes me happy, but it would have been nice if she'd gotten to see some of that success. With Frida, there's a lot of interesting cultural debate. I hear people refer to her as the selfie queen and being obsessed with her own image. I don't really think that's a fair assessment because the woman was literally confined to bed and she even said that she painted herself because she's a subject that she knows best. Not to mention her work was autobiographical and depicted the extreme suffering she endured. So while I think she definitely liked her image, she was super into perfume and makeup in addition to fashion, I don't think she was overly conceited. Sorry, that was a tangent. Let's get to Frida pop culture. The one thing I found extremely fascinating about Frida's depiction in different forms of media, and I shouldn't have been surprised by this, 
But at least for nonfiction, most of the things I read were whimsical and illustrated with pictures based on Frida and her artwork. One was an illustrated biography by Maria Hess called Frida Kahlo, An Illustrated Life. I really loved this biography, and I wish all biographies could be like it. It was written as though Frida were telling the story of her life, and Hess is an amazing artist who manages to make beautiful and sometimes cute art, but also she really captures the disturbing qualities of Frida's art. This book was super whimsical, and I highly recommend it. A graphic novel called Frida, the Story of Her Life by Vanna Vinci was similar, but less cutesy. This one was more R-rated and an honest look at Frida's life. Next, you can go straight to the source and read Frida's diary. I didn't read it so much as flip through it, and just looking at the art and her handwriting really spoke to her state of mind. She kept it the last 10 years of her life when her body was literally falling apart, so it makes sense. The handwriting is large and scrawling, and overall, I found it kind of painful to look at. When I've gone through rough times, my journals have looked similar, you know, minus the world-class art, but I can definitely relate. There are lots of podcast episodes that talk about Frida, but I'm actually only going to recommend one, which is a very scholarly discussion about Frida from BBC In Our Time, just called Frida Kahlo. Link will be in the show notes. I recommend this if you want to hear the experts talk about Frida's life and what made her tick. In terms of the more leisurely, casual history podcasts, I honestly did not like any of the episodes I listened to about her. I'm not going to name names, and I'm also not going to hold myself up as some Frida expert or paragon of cultural empathy, but the ones I listened to just seemed to either go on too long about Diego... And then there was one where the host just flat out said that she didn't like Frida or her art, so she was just dead to me. Okay, last piece of nonfiction, and honestly, out of everything, this one was my favorite. So this episode happened because back in April, I was feeling pretty anxious about something. I don't even remember what, because I'm always anxious about stupid things, but I was waiting to get my hair done. And on the table was this vibrant green book with an illustration of Frida on it. And it's called Pocket Frida Kahlo Wisdom. So I was upset about something and saw this and got excited because I love her. And I open it up and it's literally just a quote book. But Frida was a smart lady. Some that grabbed my attention included, I think that little by little, I'll be able to solve my problems and survive. Another one was, what doesn't kill me nourishes me. And still another was, I used to think I was the strangest person in the world. But then I thought, there are so many people in the world. There must be someone just like me who feels flawed and bizarre in the same ways I do. I would imagine her and imagine that she must be out there thinking of me too. Well, I hope that if you are out there and read this, know that yes, it's true. I'm here and I'm just as strange as you. So I was about to cry in the hair salon, and also now. Um, It really lifted my mood and made me so happy. So please do yourself a favor and get the pocket free to call it wisdom. Those were just the uplifting quotes. She's got plenty of snark too. Okay, onward to fiction. There's a few different historical fictions about Frida out there, but the one I focused on and loved was called The Secret Book of Frida Kahlo. This book is super whimsical, and it has that Mexican magical realism flair. It reminded me of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's work, just all of his work. It's kind of weird and irreverent, but also at times heartbreaking because it's Frida's life. 
The book takes you through her life and every chapter has a recipe at the end. And this was how I first learned about how Frida was super into cooking. I really enjoyed this book, but read the end around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, though, because I read before bed and the end kind of destroyed me. But also I might just be weirdly obsessed with Frida and overly sensitive. So who knows? But I had trouble sleeping. Okay. Last but not least, of course, the 2002 film Frida with Salma Hayek. I talked at the beginning of the episode about how I used to watch this all the time when I was in high school, so I haven't seen it since then. I start the movie, and I'm wondering, what is it about this movie that made me so obsessed when I was young? First off, the director is Julie Tamer of Lion King, The Tempest, Across the Universe fame. So immediately I was like, okay, Baby JT didn't know who Julie Tamer was, but Baby JT definitely had taste. And I actually just realized that we have the same initials. So the movie's going on, and then the bus accident. The image of Frida, naked, save for blood and gold, was angelic and striking. Then the next scene with doctors trying to save her is this trippy Tim Burton-esque animated skeleton puppet thing. That's when I realized why I watched it all the time when I was young. It checks all my boxes. Later in the film, too, they have Salma Hayek as basically living paintings that Frida had actually painted, like the two Fridas, and then at the end with death above her bed and it's lighting on fire. And I guess I just like over-the-top things, so it spoke to me. If you haven't seen it, it's graphic, but also amazing, so watch it. Okay, dear listeners, I have a couple of updates to the recommendations. I started 2020 off very excited because there was supposed to be not one, but two Frida Kahlo exhibitions here on the West Coast this year. One in San Francisco at the De Young Museum called Frida Kahlo Appearances Can Be Deceiving, which highlights her personal objects, fashion, makeup, and perfume. Then second, there was supposed to be a Frida Kahlo exhibit at the Portland Art Museum this summer called Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, and Mexican Modernism, which I love that she got the top billing on that. These have both been postponed to 2022, which seems so far away, but honestly, it's a year and a half at this point, which to me seems like a good amount of time for things to calm down. So we'll have that to look forward to at least. Next, if you like what you heard today, there are three more mini episodes on Frida. I've linked to them in the show notes, but I did one on her perfume collection, her menagerie of animals, and her relationship with Diego's previous wife, Lupe. I'll leave you with one more quote from Frida that I've made my new mantra, and I hope it brings you peace as well. At the end of the day, we can endure much more than we think we can. I'll be back soon with a new episode all about Artemisia Gentileschi, a Baroque painter who brought the man who wronged her to his knees. (laughs) 